Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to our sixth session in the Gospel of John. In our lesson today, we're going to complete our discussion of John chapter 8. And then we were going to look at the account of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Join us as we begin our study. Alan asked about um, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And, and about the historical um, background of that. So I, I pulled out my notes that we did in um, bibliology and we'll just... Just quickly go over that, and then we'll just move on because I really don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But you know, it's a question you're going to be asked. I mean, we're running with the big dogs now, so we got to ask these kind of questions. Um, and the whole question then is, you know, well, with the scant manuscript evidence for it, why do we even have it in our Bibles, or what's the deal behind it? And um, in the in the bibliology class, I I had like ten examples. Of textual criticism. These are probably, I, I picked probably the 10 top examples in the whole New Testament. And other than these 10 examples, you really don't have a lot that you need to worry about. Um, but this was what I call the case of a true story. And um, what you find here, um, this account, that of the woman taken in adultery, is not found in any of the older manuscripts of John, including P66 to 75. Now, when we studied bibliology, you've got the papyri, that's the P's, all right? And those documents go back to the second and third centuries. All right, they, they're, they're the, probably the oldest um, documents of the New Testament that we have. And one of those P52, which is a fragment actually, it's a, it's a little piece of a page John Ryland's papyrus is a is a um, quote out of the Gospel of John. It goes back about A.D. 150. So, so the oldest physical manuscript we have dates from about A.D. 150. Uh, most of the papyri show up in the third, like the 300s, 400s, is where the papyri show up. They're the oldest um, documents, and they're written on papyrus. That's why they're called papyri. Um, and then um, you have the um, the unseals, which were written on vellum, on calfskin vellum, um, and those date from the mid-400s later. Now, the reason for this, okay, is that early on, Christianity was an illegal religion. You're under persecution by Rome. So when you copied the manuscripts or the books of the New Testament, you did not get expensive. I mean, vellum and parchment was very expensive. You know, they didn't have a Home Depot, not a Home Depot, they didn't have like a like a um, Office Max or Staples back then. You know, you had to kill a cow and make your own calfskin if you wanted to write stuff. And, and this was very expensive. And, of course, the early church being mainly poor did not have access to this high-quality vellum parchment stuff. So they used what they could, which were papyri sheets. And that's that's what they had available. But then when you get into the mid-400s and later on, since Christianity now is the official religion of the Roman Empire, you know, they have access to these better materials, all right? And so the earliest manuscript we have, the earliest one, where John, this, this passage exists, 
is the Codex Bizet, which is D, the big D. That's Codex Bizet. And it dates from about 450 to 550, somewhere around in there. All right, that's the earliest record we have of this passage. All right. And you also find it in later unseals, that's manuscripts after Bizet. And you find them in cursives. What's a cursive? Cursive is the small letter. An unseal was capital letters. A cursive is the small letters. All right. And the cursives came in the 600s to 900s. That's about when the cursive started. So by looking at a document, you can pretty much tell if it's papyri, it's um, second, third, fourth century. If you start looking at unseals, you've got them from about 400s to the 700s. And if you're looking at cursives, they're usually 700 and later. All right. So you can date when these manuscripts, you know, were written by what they were written on and the style of writing. Okay. What was the third guy? Cursives. Cursives. Yeah. The, the older ones are, are designated with a P. I mean, yeah. How are the other how are the next ones? Yeah. Letters? You've got, if you, if you, you can wow your friends with this, all right? <laughs> um, the papyri are, are big P's, and then they have a number by them, like P75 and P66 are the, are two of the ones for John. Now understand papyri, um, not all the papyri had all the old all the books in them. All right. For example, P66 was just John. It wasn't. You didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke in it. You just had John in it. All right. And there's only a little over a hundred of these that we have. We don't have a lot of them because of their age. You know, they're very old and very destructible. They're very brittle. All right. Um, and those are the those are the papyri. And then you have the. Um, the unseals, and they're denoted with a capital letter or like a, a Hebrew letter, all right? So you got like Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, uh, Alexandrinus. Those are the unseals, and they're denoted with capital letters, all right? And then the one here we're talking about is D, which is the Codex Bizet. And D is the only manuscript that Erasmus had, the only unsealed manuscript Erasmus had when he created the TR, which is the basis for the King James. He had D, but he did not have access to these other unseals. They had not yet been discovered. All right? So he just used what he had. Okay? And he happened to have a manuscript, D, that had this in it. And then you have the, um, the cursives, and they're denoted by just numbers. Like you have, you know, 101 or, you know, 43, 65 or something like that. Um, they're denoted by these kind of numbers. So when you, when you go and look like in a, in a critical Greek text, if you pick one of those up, you'll see, you know, like the big P's or this or this, and that, that lets you know what they are. And they also have lectionaries that were um, like uh, Sunday school material for the early church where they quote some things. And then this, then uh, apart from this, you also have all the old translations. All right. So you might have the Italia. It's, it's denoted by this, but IT for Italia. And then there's the Georgian text. There's the Syriac, and it has the Syriac um, Keratonian. There's the uh, Harclean and several different ones. There's about four or five of those. Those are really old um, translations. So those are also used in textual criticism. But the bottom line here is that this particular passage first shows up in the, in the manuscript evidence 
with D, all right, with Codex, Codex BZ. That's roughly 30,000 pieces? Thousands. Um, Did you use a 30,000 number before? Yeah, I'm, you only have, I can't remember, I have it here somewhere, the, the actual number. Um, there's, there's a little over 100 of these. There's about 170, and I'm pulling this right out of my memory, so I'm probably wrong. Somewhere around the same here. We have a lot of these. All right, and then when you throw in the lectionaries and that, we've got thousands of fragments and pieces of the New Testament. Thousands. Okay. How many fragments and pieces do we have in the Old Testament? Not as many. Um, and the reason being, really, the Old Testament is based on like four or five manuscripts that we have, old manuscripts. Prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the earliest was from the 900s. And that was the Masoretic text from the 900s. Um, and that's based on like four manuscripts that we have. Um, and then when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the liberals are going frothing at the mouth thinking they're going to show just how rotten the, you know, the scripture was. And to their horror, it pretty much agreed word for word with the Masoretic text. I mean, you pick, and, and by the way, the, the time difference between those was 1,300 years. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls were 200 BC. The Masoretic text about AD 900 to 1,000. And they're virtually identical text. I mean, other what you find, what you do find is you find um, spellings, um, grammar changes over the years, you know that kind of stuff. But as far as the meaning of the text and what it says, um, they're virtually identical. I mean, the the, the similarity is is extremely high. So All right. we have uh, New Testament fragments closer to used at this time than Old Testament fragments. Yeah. Or, or manuscript or Yeah. Um, you know, quite honestly, the earliest Old Testament manuscript we have would probably be one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's, you know, 500 years removed from Isaiah. Okay. You know. Now, one thing we do have is from the, about that time frame, we have the um, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that's that's a separate attestation to the text. And that's important because if I if I know what the Greek text is, I can reconstruct closely what the Hebrew was that it was translated from. All right? So that's another... And, and, and quite honestly, folks, look, when you go back and you start looking at this stuff, the, the, the accuracy of our text is so high as to, as to really be something that doesn't even need to be debated. It is so high. It is not exact. Unfortunately, it is not. Because I don't have Isaiah's original scroll. But what we have is so close to what he has written that any difference is, is indistinguishable and, and any theology is untouched. There, there is no, no, no theological impact. Well, yeah, in the text, it, did, it said that it would probably have been more likely a Luke and not a John, and that it, it did mention those symbols in one paragraph. Yeah. So it alluded to them, but I mean, of course, you elaborated on it yeah. because it talked about Codex D and mm -hmm. a couple other things, but briefly. You know. and, and if I remember correctly, Codex D was the only uncial that Erasmus had in his possession because of the geography. You understand most of these, most of the older manuscripts and, and that were preserved in places of the Roman Empire 
that Erasmus didn't have access to because of the political situation. It was not until many years later that these things showed up. Um, he didn't know they existed. All right, and, and his uh, production of the Textus Receptus, called, so-called, that's underneath the King James, was really done with a very small number of manuscripts that he had access to. It was not done with a great number. He, he just he basically had what he had, <laughs> and uh, he was actually even missing the last page of Revelation that he had to translate from Latin back to Greek to get it in his his um, manuscript because he didn't have that that page. His uh, text. His manuscript was missing the last page of Revelation. All right. Now, when you look at this, this um, the the the, the um, textual um, evidence for this particular passage, you, you when you're doing um, uh, textual criticism, you have different tests. One of the tests is the test of antiquity. And understand, all of these all of these are just pieces. They're not not no not, no one of these trumps anything else. All right. They all got to be taken together to, to, to form, you know, or to, to draw a conclusion from. When you look at the test of antiquity, in other words, is this in the oldest manuscripts we have? The answer is no, it is not. All right. So it fails the test of antiquity. You know, if, if you had a couple of these papyri that had it in it, you know, then, of course, that would shift, you know, the evidence. Sure, yeah. Right. But when you have these really old papyri, none of them have it, all right? It makes you really wonder, was it in the original text that John wrote? The test of number, well, you've got a lot. It's almost split. When you look at just the number of manuscripts, the number that have it are about equal to the number that don't, but the number that have it are all the later ones. And a lot of those are, understand, most of the cursives were created from an uncial. In other words, I had my uncial and I wrote a cursive, and then somebody put that cursive, and they copied that one and that one and that one. And actually, you can trace some of these. You can trace how they, how these cursive families go. Because you, know, you might be visiting from Bongo Bongo, and you copy down the book of John or something, and you take it back to your church, and then you copy it again and go somewhere else, and they can actually trace those. All right. But when you look at the number, it's evenly split. Um, variety, the idea of variety is... Um, is, is ge not only geographic, but different, different areas. In other words, if, um, if there's a lot of different areas that omit it, like you know, the, the, the Western Roman text or Western Empire text omit it, the, um, the Palestinian text omit it, it's omitted in the Greek text, the Alexandrian text, different geographical periods, different times, different families, then that would seem to indicate it wasn't there. All right, because it, it's not it's not like it was there and then over here over here it's not. Okay? It's pretty much spread out. So when you when you look at the um, the test of variety, um, the older uncials and, and the minuscules that come off of Bizet have it, others don't. So that would tend to tell you that no it wasn't part of the original text. Um, respectability. In other words, um, there are certain texts that you lend a lot of weight to. P75 and 66 are highly reliable texts. You know, they, they are considered to be the oldest reliable account of the Gospel of John. Both of them omit this passage. All right? So that would make you tend to think it wasn't there. Um, continuity. What do we mean by continuity? Um, by continuity, we talk about long time frames. So if I have a text that appears 
in AD 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, I can pretty much assume that that is a reliable account, all right? But if all of a sudden it just appears in AD 400 and I have nothing before that, it would tend to weight it the other way that no, maybe it wasn't part of the original text, all right? And that's what continuity is. Um, context. Um, you look at the context of the passage. Does this thing fit in there? Well, it, it's sort of inconclusive. It can't fit in there. It doesn't have to be there. The text would flow just fine without it. So you really can't lend a lot of weight to that. And reasonableness, the same way. Is it a reasonable thing to have there? Well, yeah. It, it would have been something that John could have written. He could have not written it. We don't have that. So when you put all of these texts together, all right, um, the evidence tends to say we should omit it, all right? Is it a true story? Yeah, most likely it is. I mean, we could certainly imagine Jesus doing this, couldn't we? You know, is it a, are you a heretic if you keep it in there? No. Are you a heretic if you move it, remove it? No, I don't think so, all right? Unless you want to say the King James was re-inspired re by the Holy Spirit, which some people believe. Um, and then um, if you look at other things, for example, the story has several words that John doesn't use anywhere else in any of his writings. All right. Um, the oldest manuscripts is excluded. So the question you have to ask is, is this. If the older manuscript, here's, think about this. Is, are you more apt to omit something that was there or add something that wasn't there? I, I agree with add something. I know you're going to say omit. A textual criticism, the tendency is to omit. But the tendency is to explain things with all these margins. Right, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two ways to look at it. Situation. There's two ways to look at it. One is conflation. Conflation growth, all right? Um, and and so there's there is a tendency there, but the question you have to ask yourself if it was part of the original text, why did every single one of your of our oldest manuscripts until eighty four fifty why why did every record we have of that omit it? Well, they wouldn't. They did. I mean, it's, if if it was part of John's original, if it was there. Why was it omitted? Right. It, it wouldn't have been, I don't think. That's what I'm saying. Right. That's the point. That's right. the point. And so the tendency would be to add it later. Right. Like the... Somebody put a marginal note in. Somebody somebody remembers, you know, why, I, I heard from John, I heard from Dave, I heard from Polycarp, I heard from Ignatius, I heard from John about this thing that happened, and he put a marginal note in, and it gets brought into a later copy. You know, um, that's common. We, we, we can pick those things out. So the tendency would be, it's easier to explain it being added than it would be to explain it originally being there and not there, and then appearing again. That's the whole point. All right. And when you look at the manuscripts that contain it, there's a lot of variation between them in this passage. There's a lot of different variations. It's not like a, you know, there's just a lot of different readings in it, all right, which will tend to make you think it probably shouldn't be there. Also, for example, the old Latin manuscripts, these go back to the 8200, all right? Um, they omit it. 
Um, the Syrian, Armenian, and Gothic translations omit. Those are all second, third century translations. So the question is, whatever they, whatever they translated their Gospel of John from didn't have it. All right. They um, probably wouldn't translate all of them from the same. No, they wouldn't, but but the fact that none of them right. have it, yeah. okay? And then you look at the Greek expositors. You've got Aridon, Cyril of Alexander, Chrysostom, Nanus, Theophylact. They're, they're commentators, and none of them mention this passage. And they're, they're pre-AD 400. None of them talk about this even being there. They have commentaries on John, and nobody even mentions this passage. Um, and, then, and then when it does appear in the later manuscripts, it appears at different places in the text. Some have it appear after verse 36, another verse 44. Some even put it at the end of the gospel. There are some manuscripts with it all the way at the end of the gospel. Um, so, you know, the final word on this, I think, is you got to make your mind up for yourself. I would tend to say it is a true story. It's an accurate story, but it was not part of John's original gospel. All right. Um, I think there's value in looking at it and, and value in, in seeing what it says because I think it is important. But was it what John had in his original gospel? I don't think so. All right. My theology has not changed. I'm still going to heaven. I still believe in the deity of Christ um, and all that stuff. But, <laughs> you know, you got to put that out because there are some people that, and I got websites where they you get people that say, if you do not, in fact, there are some websites that say if you are saved with a version other than the King James, you're not saved. You've got to be saved by the verses out of the King James Bible, or you're not a Christian. Now, that's that's a scary thought, because if you're Spanish, you're sort of screwed if you don't know English. Um, anyways... So that's the long answer to a short question, all right? And hopefully we'll beat that horse to death. Go do your own research on this, your own study on this. you got to come up with your own conclusion um, on this particular text. Let's see, we left off right around um, verse 31. Let's pick up there. And what you see here is you, is you see a... Um, Sort of like a, a, a I, want, I wouldn't call it a seesaw battle. It's not the way to look at it. But you see, you see a tension between people who sort of believe in Jesus and people who really believe in Jesus. All right, you've got a crowd that follows Jesus, and and he 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 turns around and he gives them, okay, you want to follow me? Here's the price, and people go away. All right, they don't want to follow him. You've got the crowds who follow him across the sea to get another. Meal, breakfast. Um, he's got a lot of these people that seem to follow, but when he starts laying out the cost of following him, everybody wants to go. And we talked about that last week. There's a cost to follow Jesus. It's everything you got. It'll cost you everything. <clears throat> you know, is, is salvation free? Yo. Yes, it's free in a sense there's no way you can pay for it. No, it is not free in the sense that Christ says... If you're not willing to give up everything to follow me, I don't want you as my disciple. You can't hold on to your sin and take Christ too. You can't hold on to your traditions and take Christ. It's, it, he's, he's an exclusive 
commodity. I don't want to use that word commodity. It's exclusive. It's him or nothing. All right. You can't have him and other stuff. And Christ is constantly trying to get this across to the people. And he says in verse 31, you know, it says many Jews believed on him. Verse 30, many believed on him. And he says, if you continue in my words, then you are my true disciple. What does it mean to continue in Christ's words? To do it, to be obedient. To follow him, obey him, do what he says. All right? And here's where we talked, and we hit about this last week. Here's where you have one of those um, apparent paradoxes of the Christian faith. We got a few of those. Who wrote Romans, Paul or the Holy Spirit? Both. I mean, you can see Paul through there. You can see his writing, his style of writing, but the Holy Spirit so guided him. You know, who lives your Christian life? Do you do it or does the Holy Spirit do it? Well, both of you do it. It's you, but it's not you. Paul says it's me, but it's not me. Um, and then here's another one of those paradoxes here, okay? From the divine perspective, from God's eternal perspective, you are lost or saved. You're not in between. All right? And you're not saved, then lost, then saved again, then lost, then saved, then lost. I mean, you're saved or you're not saved. All right? But how do you know that? How do you know you're saved? By continuing. By continuing. By continuing. Now, who's, how are you continuing? Whose power is it that enables you to continue? Yours or God's? God. It's both of you. It's God that gives you the power to do that, but you got to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to obey God today. Not my, I'm not going to do my own thing. But who gives you the ability to make that choice to do the right thing? God does. And he gets all the credit for it. And, you know, you, you see this in, um, if I can remember the verse correctly, 2 Timothy um, it's a good verse on this to bring this out. He says, um, I'm trying to find the, here it is. Verse 19. Okay. Two. <laughs> Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now I was confused on that verse for an awful long time, because it didn't make any sense. But if you accept the paradox of the Christian life, it makes perfect sense. Does God know who are his? Yeah, he's not mistaken. He knows whether you're saved or not. From the human perspective, those of us who are saved, what should we do? In this verse, it's depart from iniquity. All right? So don't tell me you're a Christian and you can sin all you want because it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven anyhow. That shows a very bad understanding of what it means to be a Christian. 
Paul saying to Timothy, God, God knows who are his. There's no doubt about that. But I don't have a copy of the Book of Life. I don't see the halos. I don't see the E's on the forehead. I don't see you glowing. So how do I know you or me, myself, and, and really Scripture is more inflexive than anything else. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Is because I continue in his word. Does that mean I perfectly obey? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that ultimately I will not abandon the faith. Why will I not abandon the faith? Because I can't. Why can't I abandon the faith? Because God will not let me abandon the faith. Did Peter deny Christ? Yeah, but did he deny Christ in a final, full, never-to-come-back sense? No. How about Judas? But Judas never had it, did he? And this, this, and the reason I bring this up because there's a lot of, of biblical traditions, a lot of theological traditions that really get confused on this. All right, there are those that say, well, if you're saved, they're called the antinomians, anti against nomos law. If I'm saved, I can do anything I want because it doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven. So I can sin all I want because it won't make any difference. All right. And I remember watching a cigar-smoking guy preach Christian liberty on TV with the ashtray on the podium, smoking a big cigar, talking about the liberty he has in Christ to do whatever he wants. Um, he didn't tell me that. He was that guy. I, I forget the guy. He was from Los Angeles. Sort of an interesting character. I don't know, but he was a rough-looking dude, I'll tell you. His message was, as a Christian, you have liberty to do whatever you want. You're forgiven. It doesn't matter. If you want to smoke, drink, chew, go with girls who do, it doesn't matter because you're in. All right? And, and, and how dare anyone tell you that you need to live a holy life? That's legalism. And his, you know, legalism is the bad thing. All right? So there's the antinomian crowd, you know. But then all the way on the other end, there's the legalistic crowd that says, you know, if I do this, I've lost my salvation. You know, if I commit a sin, I've lost my salvation, i got to get saved again. And I remember talking to a guy that's been saved, I think he was saved like 500 times. You know, and it's like, because in his mind, every time he committed a sin, he had to get saved all over again. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches either. All right? The Bible teaches, if I'm in Christ, I am a new creation. That's an irreversible thing, folks. You can't, you can't take that away. And we already talked about that. God chose you in eternity past for glorification in eternity future. Your salvation is a step along the way. As far as God's concerned, you're sitting with him in glory from his perspective. But from the human perspective, from our finite, temporal, we live in this world perspective, how do I know I'm a Christian? I know I'm a Christian because when I look at my life, I see a gradual <laughs> upward progression of sanctification. I know Romans speak of something. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid. God forbid. You know, that's the that that's the antinomian crowd. Well, you know, if my sin makes God look good, I can really make God look good by really sinning good, you know. That's not what it's all about, folks. 
If you love God, you want to honor him, you want to do those things to please him. And why do you want to, to continue in the very actions that caused his son to die on a cross for you? That doesn't make any sense at all. All right. I don't think you would, if you're really saved, you don't really want to see him. You, you don't want to. Up sometime, you know, make, well, you know, the, 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 the behind yeah. it. <laughs> and Christ was looking at the crowd. He's saying, those of you who believe in me, you really believe in me when you continue in my words. That's when, that's when, that, that separates the real believers from the false ones. And you're going to see this dichotomy brought out by John later on, the vine and the branches, right? I was going to already ask that question. The vine and the branches are coming along. And what you have is you have the true vine and you have the sucker vines. <clears throat> All right, and and people like to use in, in their certain traditions that love to go there and say, "See, you can lose your salvation." Well, now wait a minute. All right. Says any branch that beareth not fruit, it's cut off and thrown. It's cut fire. off, and 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 and. You're part of the vine. I mean, but you're not part of the vine. You're part of the vine, but you're not part. And we'll get to there. We'll we'll expand that there. All right, because you've got to. This is called the 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 content of. You know, logia scriptura. You've got to, you got, you can't take John and say, I lose my salvation in John, and then take another passage that says, I can't lose my salvation. You either can't lose it or you can lose it. You don't have an in between. All right? And you can't take a clear passage that says, you cannot lose your salvation, and then take what is a parable or a story of Christ and try to draw theology from that. You got to understand something about parables. Parables are not to teach you theology. They're to illustrate a point. All right? They're to illustrate a point. They're not to teach you theological truth. All right? So you got to be careful when you go there because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble, you know, by trying to go to a parable and teach theology. All right? They illustrate truth, but they don't teach truth. All right? They're, they're an illustration. We'll get to that. We'll get there. This is probably indirectly related on this whole thing about repetitive sin. You know, I grew up as a Catholic. <laughs> you know, the whole thing about intermediate confession over and over. I mean, I never bought that to myself to go, okay, boom, you can go out, sin, you can come back, you can go out. You know, and then one time, finally, a priest kicked me out of the confessional. <laughs> I was about 13 or 14. It broke my I mean, what's he doing? How can you do that? You know? So, I mean, that whole thing about the repentance, there were so many people I knew that just thought, well, okay, I went to confession, now it's time to start over. I'll go back to confession. I mean, it never made sense to me. It never did, and all the time that I, I mean, I grew up in a devout Catholic family. You know? Yeah, it never make it doesn't make sense because it it's not supposed to make sense. <laughs> I mean, I, all right, I just um, understand it. It's not supposed to make sense because what you have in the Catholic system is a false theology that says you're saved, and it's this irritating thing. You got you got folks, you got it. You got to learn to ask, what do you mean by that? I mean, that's a very good question to ask. What do you mean by that? Because the Catholic comes up to you and says, I'm saved by grace. Well, what do you mean by that? All right. And what you mean by that is that I'm saved by grace in that when I do the sacraments, I have grace infused to me. All right. So I'm saved by grace, but it's not grace alone. All right. And then they'll say, well, I'm saved by faith. I mean, I'm saved by faith, too. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by you're saved by faith? You know. And you ask a Mormon that. A Mormon will come and say, I'm saved by grace through faith. What do you mean by that? Well, isn't it gracious that God gave me a way to earn my salvation? 
All right. So you always got to ask those questions. It's very important to ask them because I'll save you from a lot of confusion. All right. What Christ is telling the people here is that how do you people know you are my true disciples? Well, it's because you continue in my words. If you don't continue in my words, you're not my true disciple. That's a general statement. All right. And that's a true statement. That's a true statement. And if you continue my, by my word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You'll know the truth. You've got to continue in the truth. And so all of those passages talk about, well, if you continue, then you are a true disciple. It's not teaching a work salvation. All right. It's teaching. How do I want to put it? It's teaching. How do you authenticate who the true disciples are? Well, the true disciples are the ones who continue. The true disciples are the ones who abide in Christ. The true disciple is the one who continues in the word. Doesn't Paul said, I'll show you my faith by my works? That was James that said that. And it's also the true disciples will not just take those last five words and make a theology out of it. No. <laughs> no. The truth will set you free. No. Make you free. Yeah, that's what you hear on the Benny Hinn yeah, network. Yeah, they take they those say, five words yeah. and make a whole theology free. out of it apart from what it's talking about. <clears throat> and what Christ is saying here is the truth will make you Free from what? Well, from condemnation, from sin, from that's what the freedom is here. It's, it's not it, it's it's spiritually spiritual freedom, you know. And, and that's one of the things you know Paul talks about in Romans six. People say, well, you know, I don't want to become a Christian because then I'm not free. Well, you're not free now, right. you know. As an unbeliever, you're free to sin. <laughs> That's right. And and you get you get the wages for that, which is death. You're enslaved to sin. So you can be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Which one do you want to be? You're going to be a slave to one of them. Pick one. One leads to death, one leads to life. One goes to hell, one goes to heaven. And and there's no in between. And so the point Christ is making to the crowds here is that is that those who truly follow me. And truly abide my words, they're my true disciples. Now, when it was all said and done, how many true disciples did Christ have? 500. Not a whole lot. There's 120 in the upper room, right? 11 of the 12, there's 120 in the upper room. There were others, you know. But, but you look at the number of people that he helped as opposed to the number of people that were true disciples, not a lot. Yeah, 5,000 5, men fed, maybe two disciples out of the whole bunch. All right. I mean, really. I mean, you look at that, and, and, and that's why we got to be careful with our obsession with numbers. You know, we got this obsession with numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, Paul, Paul was the number two disciple maker on the planet. How many did he have when he was all done? Timothy and Titus. Those are the only two disciples. Those are the only two that really caught it. Hmm. That's recorded. So maybe Luke as well. 
Well, I mean, there, there were others that, but I mean, when, when you look at the, yeah, true sons in the faith that really have caught it, those were the two. But Paul, Paul didn't have a lot. Yeah. I mean, one, it's an, I, was, I talk to myself when I eat lunch. Sign of mental illness, I guess. It's only when you answer yourself or when you argue with yourself and lose the argument. Um, but, but one of the things is, is I've, I've been a Christian long enough now to have seen him come and go. You know, and in my own life, I've seen people, you know, so they come in and you think, wow, you know, this guy's really on fire for the Lord, you know, and the next thing you know, they're, this guy divorced his wife and left the church. Then they come in and they're buzzing around. And you think, wow, you know, they're really, and then they haven't been to church for 20 years and they hate God. You know, you, you find out about them. And, it's, and, and, and and I'll tell you what, when you look at this thing of discipleship and, and staying, there's probably, there's probably a lot less people saved in your church than you think there are. You think it's still just that remnant? Mm-hmm. It's a scary thought sometimes when you think about it. It's scary to me. Especially if you want to be part of that remnant. It's scary to me. So you so man, that's I mean that's 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 kind of deep because if you look at it, it's like I mean, Satan's eyes, he feel like he's winning it, right? If he got more people than God. Well, you know, just remember what Christ said, wide is the gate and narrow, you know, broad is the way, you know. So just statistically speaking, how many people are on the narrow way as opposed to the broad way? Yeah, I understand, I understand, I understand that, but I'm just looking at it in a different, in a different, you know, mm-hmm. 49 a little bit different. Like, how can Satan take 90 and God take 10? That's the way it is. Essentially, I was, I was watching, I saw a little article on the 10 fastest growing churches in America. The number one church right now is Joel Osteen's at 47,000. Yeah. My wife, yeah. I because I was telling my wife, which was, you know. Oh, that guy's bad bananas. Run from him. He said, how do you feel about, what's his perspective on uh, Joel Osteen? Yes, run away from him. <laughs> it's a prosperity yeah, thing. You listen to him. And yeah, you run, and, and you know that because his church is so large. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, you know, you can have it's a big a church. Life. It's easy to have a big church. Find out what people want and tell them. Compare Olsteen and Warren, Rick Warren. Yeah, and Rick isn't really prosperity. Rick Warren's not prosperity. I think Rick Warren is a true Christian, but I think I, I have trouble with Rick Warren. Because I think his mentality is, I think he's a pragmatist. If you get the right technique down and you do it the right way, you'll have a big church. Well, you know what? It doesn't work that way. God builds the church. You don't. That's right. And none of your little tricks and doodads are going to bring one non-elect person into the kingdom. And nothing you say is going to keep a non, an elect person out. So the best way to do is just preach the gospel as best you can, and let the chips fall where the chips fall. But that's that's Schaefer's perspective on Rick Warren. Celebrity diminishes the the true um, spirituality of many. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying Rick Warren's a heretic. I'm not, don't don't walk out here and say Schaefer thinks Rick Warren's a heretic. No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. What about Billy Graham? What do you think? Billy Graham was a good evangelist. He preached the gospel, but in his old age, he got naive by saying that the Pope is a great Christian person. That just shows me someone that doesn't understand 
the real God. And that, that's one of the things we're going to study in the class coming up next. If you really understand what the whole Reformation was about, you will run screaming from the Catholic Church with your ears covered. If you really understand what it was all about, you won't fall into this, this blather about the quote, Pope being a great Christian leader and Mother Teresa enjoying the glories of heaven right now. You will understand exactly the true condition of these people. I grew up being taught that he's the Antichrist. Well, you're probably pretty close. Yeah, you're probably, he's probably closer to the Antichrist. And really, I don't understand what Antichrist means. Antichrist can mean against, but it can mean instead of. Antique can mean instead of. All right. And uh, the people in the Catholic Church are more loyal to the Pope than they are to the Scripture and to Christ. So in that case, yes, he is. You got it right. Yeah. First, that's what I liked about Franklin, because a couple of years ago he dared to stand up at all about and say that the Muslims didn't really, you know, I mean, he spoke exactly like it is. And he took a lot of flack, I guess, where he was speaking. I can't remember where it was, Franklin. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing, when you mentioned earlier about, you know, a person who thinks he might be a Christian son because of his sudden thing in their heart. And we had an illustration here, and you remember two or three years ago, there was a guy about my age. He came into the men's group. One day, somebody witnessed to him out here. He supposedly had a life that was horrible, drinking, everything. And then he said he was really on fire. Every week, you ask him when you go around, things are great. They couldn't be better. Things are great. He even worked in the crossroads when I was over there running that crossroads. A couple other, I mean, he was in the groups. Suddenly, one day, we saw a newspaper headline. He killed his wife. This is the guy who shot his wife at the library in the ranch. I mean, but it's, he was, he would, he was in, he just believed. He was truly saved, he was truly, and he completely lost it, you know. He just lost it. That's why sin, you know, we got we got to be careful. Sin is so yeah. deceptive. And, um, you know, again and again, the Bible warns us, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Remember, Paul says that to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Um, pay attention. That's scary when you talk about Billy Graham and... I mean, who, who spent 50 years right on, and then in his later years, he says dumb things. I mean, yeah, and that, that's he's, he's the Lord, he's, he's the Lord's chief. And you know what? He, he I, I was talking to a cousin. I, I, I do a lot of family history research, and I ran into a cousin, a distant cousin on the internet, and she was saved. She and her family were saved under Billy Graham. I mean, truly born again. And I have no doubt that Billy Graham has done some wonderful, you know, things. Um, but then all of a sudden you say something really stupid like that, that, you know, the, the, the Pope is the greatest example of Christian in the world. And it's like, Billy, do you really understand the gospel that you preach? You know, because Catholicism is a chameleon. I mean, they, they can take, they can put on any color and make you think yeah. that they're okay. Yeah. You got to be careful with that. But we got through two verses in an hour. That's not good. Is it? Don't you think, though, when you think about the truth, when you see the truth, as close to it as you can get to it through the Bible, you can never believe anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, once if you're a child and once you realize there's no Santa Claus, you can never get that child to ever believe there's Santa Claus again. And I think when we get to that truth that the Bible's talking about, the truth that sets you free, when we, when we find we it's as close to that as we can get, then I think it opens up our eyes in a way that not only... Uh, 
I don't believe you can ever change that. How, and, how and, can you ever change something that you know for yeah. a fact? You can't tell me two and two is eight. You can never tell me that. I may make a mistake and add it wrong, but uh, if you go back and check it, you go back, it's, it's there. It's the truth. And that's because God has done a work in our hearts to give us a knowledge and an understanding of the truth. How do I know the truth? Because God has given me the ability to see it. It's him. It's not my great superior intellect. And don't you think, too, as a Christian, when that truth is manifest to you and you take it in, it actually changes who you are. That's the point. The, the, the grace, this is a very, un, I love this statement. The grace that saves you transforms you. Yes. And that's all Christ is really hitting at here. How do you know the true disciple from the false? Well, the true disciples continue in his work. Now, they may not do that perfectly. They may blow it now and then and sin. But they always come back. There's always a return. There's always a, a desire and a hunger and a thirst to do what's right. As imperfect as it is, you want, as imperfect as we all are, we want to not sin. We want to honor God. And that's the difference. Okay? So how do I know that John is a Christian? Well, when I look at his life, there's evidence there that tells me there's a hunger for God's word. There's a thirst for righteousness. There's, he, he understands biblical truth. He wouldn't do that if he was a pagan. He wouldn't have put up with me for eight years if he was a pagan. All right. I'm a saint, but a little different when people go this way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what makes us different. All right. And and then he said, the truth shall make you free. Then immediately they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? What are they thinking of? <laughs> Political freedom. Now here's the Pharisees trotting in. Here's the, the religious muckety mucks. And they said, well, we're under bondage to no man. Now that's a lie because who they are in bondage to? Rome. Rome. All right. But, but they have this idea, well, we're Abraham's seed, we're free. And, and here's the thing, here's you got to understand, okay? you got, you got to understand that there are three things. You ask the average Pharisee, are you going to heaven? All right? And you say, yes. And you say, give me three reasons. So I'll give you three reasons. All right? One, I'm Abraham's descendant. Okay? That was one. I mean, I mean there were rabbis that taught that no Jew goes to hell. All right. And he says, I'm also, no, I'm going to heaven because I've been circumcised. That's a big one to know. Um, there are rabbis that wrote that Abraham sits at the gates of hell and checks you as you go in. If you're circumcised, you don't go into hell. He will not allow any circumcised Israelites to enter hell. So he didn't. So they say he didn't. <laughs> no, he just sits at the gate making sure you don't go in. All right. <laughs> and then they said, well, we have God's law. All right. Now, just before you start, you know, beating on the Pharisees, you ask some of the average Christian pagans in churches today, they go to heaven and say, well, sure, you know, I belong to the Lutheran church. Of course I'm going to heaven. I've been baptized. You ask the Catholic, you go to heaven, well, sure, I've been baptized as a baby and I haven't committed a mortal sin. So I might have to, you know, lay around in purgatory for a few million years, but I'll eventually get there. 
Ask the Pope that. Ask him why is he going to heaven. He'll give you the wrong answer. Circumcise, this is, you know, baptism. There are people think, well, I've been baptized, I'm in. And I said, well, you know, I have the Bible. You know, I sort of attend church. I'm a member of the First uh, Methodist Church or First Baptist Church or whatever. I mean, and what Christ is going to do out here, he's going to he's going to bash their um, confidence in their nationality. And Paul, by the way, in, in Romans two, he does the same thing, right? Yeah. He says, "Oh, you're a circumcised? Well, big deal. You know, that doesn't mean anything." All right. He says, you're Abraham's seed. In fact, Christ would say, you know, if I wanted to, I could take some stones and make children of Abraham. Just because you're Abraham's seed doesn't mean anything. And because you have the law, that's really bad news because now you're responsible for breaking it. Because you know what God wants. Just because you have the law, just because... And remember what Paul said? Ephesians, not Ephesians, Philippians 3. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew the Hebrews. Yep, got that one. I was circumcised the eighth day. Oh, got that one. Okay. As concerning the zeal of the law, I was got that one. And he says, I looked at that and I saw Christ. And I said, okay. Garbage. Manure. Excrement. Human waste. And the problem is the Pharisees had put their trust in their lineage, their law, and the fact that they had their male member cut. Because of that, they were in. And Christ confronts them on this. We're Abraham's descendants. We've not been in bondage to anybody. What's Jesus say? Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. You're not free. You think you guys think you're free? You're not free. You're a slave to sin. And, that, and that's why, you know, you ask a pagan what comes up, I'm free. I don't want to become a Christian because I have freedom to do what I want. No, you don't. You have the freedom to make choices, right? But what choices are you going to make? Good ones or bad ones? Bad ones. And some badder than others, but they're all bad because you don't have the ability to make a good decision. You're a slave to your passions. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to your own selfish outlook on life. And Christ is telling these guys, you don't you think you're free? You guys are slaves to sin. And he says, a, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, he does a play on, on words here, and this brings up a theological concept that Paul brings up later on, adoption. And he's saying a son, what's the difference between a son and a slave? Well, a slave abides in the house forever, the son is free. If you know the Son, the Son will make you free, and you will be truly free. You want to be free? You want to be free from sin? You go the way of the cross. You abide in Christ. You believe in Him. The 
Pharisees thought that they were free because they had the law. They had the circumcision. They were children of Abraham. That didn't make them free. They were slaves to sin. They couldn't do anything but sin. And so I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Yeah, you're Abraham's physical offspring. And see, here's, here's something to understand, okay? People have this idea that, well, the Israelites in the Old Testament were saved. I, I use the term saved, but that's a bad term to use. They were redeemed because they were part of, they were God's covenant people. And because of that, they had a spatial place of honor and blessing. All right? We got to think about this. Just think about this. Did the Jewish nation have a place of honor and blessing? Yeah, they did, right? The nation, yeah. They had the law, right? They had the prophets sent to them. Yeah. Did every single individual in the nation have the same blessing? No, why? Because there were those who just didn't uh, want to live by that. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to live that under that. So, yes. Paul gods. picks up on this in, in 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, the Israelites who came out of Egypt, they all were baptized in Moses. No, they are identified with Moses. They went through the Red Sea. They went through the wilderness. They were with Moses. But what happened to them? They didn't get the promised land. Why not? Because they uh, died in unbelief. Died unbelief. So were they blessed? Yes. But that blessing was not a carte blanche promise to everybody in the nation. You understand the difference? Okay? Were the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, were they a blessed people? Yes, but that doesn't mean every single one of them partook of that blessing because there had to be a personal choice. They had to believe. They had to have faith. Make, do you understand the difference here? In other words, they're not going to heaven if they didn't have that faith. Absolutely. Just because they were an Israelite, they don't they don't get a free get out of hell free card. That's right. All right. And that yet that's what the Pharisees believe. They believe that God created the Gentiles as fuel for hell. And because they were Abraham's descendants, they got a pass. It didn't matter how bad you were as an Israelite, if you were Abraham's descendant and you had circumcision, you go to heaven. It didn't matter what you did. They were very, uh, a very prideful person. Absolutely. You look at it. And here's the thing. God does not want anybody in heaven who thinks they deserve to be there. How would you, like you like to spend eternity living next door to some guy who really thinks he deserves to be in heaven? And all he does is remind you every day of what he did to get there. That'd be irritating after a while, wouldn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why we're all there by the grace of God. Nobody goes to heaven and says, I deserve to be here. No man can boast. Ephesians, well, Romans 3. No flesh should boast in his sight. God does not want heaven full of people who are boasting about what they did to get there. Yes. It's not about them. It's about him. It's his grace. 
And the Pharisees thought that, hey, God owes me this because of what I did. And Christ is saying, you tell me you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're trying to kill me, which means that my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do not know, you do not, and you do not, you do what you have seen with your father. I, I tell you what my father has told me and sent me to tell you, and you're following your father. Mm -hmm. Even by their own uh, traditions, you know, when a prophet stood up and said, thus saith the word of the Lord, they could have judged him on that account, and that would have verified who mm -hmm. he was. The answer to say to him, Abraham is our father. Yeah. Who are they identifying with as their father? Abraham. Abraham. All right. And by the way, the thing that Christ chooses them on in Matthew, he says, you know what? You guys, uh, you, you, you venerate the prophets that your father stoned to death. Mm -hmm. You talk about how great they are, yet your fathers are the ones that put them to death. Mm -hmm. The blood of the prophets is on your hand. Jesus said, um, said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Yeah, he's identifying them with their father. They're thinking, well, that's Abraham. And Christ says, well, no, it's not, because... Abraham listened to what I had to tell him. Abraham believed the words that were sent to him from the Father. You don't believe. You don't accept them. And they should have accepted them. Why? Because of the miracles that Christ done. Because of the validation that he did. They did not want to believe because he did not fit their view of a Messiah. They could not control him. They wanted a Messiah in their own image. And because Christ was not beating up the Romans and throwing them out of the land and restoring the national pride of Israel, and listen here, patting the Pharisees on the back saying it's so good that you guys are so holy, because he wasn't doing that, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father. God, the hint here is, what are they hinting about Christ? His birth. Yeah. We weren't born of fornication like you. We know our father. We know our lineage. Mm -hmm. We know who we're from. Isn't it amazing how much they dug in to really find out about who Jesus was? His whole life. So it's funny. back to the story of Mary. Uh, Mary yeah, pregnant, yeah. the virgin birth. The virgin birth. So, so they believe he, he, Joseph and he was really Joseph and Mary's child. No, they believe that he was born of fornication. He was born out of wedlock. He yeah. was an illegitimate child. We know about you. That's what they tell me. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and come from God. This is interesting. If you love the son, you will love the father. If you love the father, you will love the Son, don't say you love Christ and hate God. And John even goes further and says, don't tell me you love God, but you hate your brother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who, who you see daily. 
He says, I proceeded forth and come from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. I come from God to do what God has told me to do, to give you the message of truth. You won't receive it. Therefore, since you don't receive it, you can't be from God the Father, because if you were, you'd believe me. Therefore, your father is not God. And it's not Abraham, because if Abraham was here, he'd believe me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Folks, listen, all right? These guys, why were the Pharisees unable to listen to Christ? Two reasons. What is the divine reason they could not listen to Christ? Because God had not allowed them to. Right. What is the human reason they could not believe in Christ? The hardness of their heart. And both of them are evidence. And you've got to take both of them. Don't take one and leave the other. Both of them are there. And that's how I understand things. The way I understand this whole human responsibility, God's sovereignty business, is if God does not interfere, I will reject him. I will never choose God. Ever. Not only because I can't understand it, but because I don't want it. Because it's telling me something I don't want to hear. Understand, the gospel is an offensive message, folks. It's offensive. It is offensive. Sit on Larry King Live and say, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. If you're a Muslim, you're on your way to hell, and they'll run you out of town. They will explode. How dare you be so, so pompous as to think that you have... We're living in that world, folks. Yes, we are. And Christ is saying, you know, you guys, you can't understand. I'm sorry. You can't believe. You can't believe because you won't believe. And listen, both of those components are there. Both of them. And the scripture teaches that those who go to reprobation, those who go to hell, go there because they reject the truth. They don't go there because God didn't choose them. They go there because they reject the truth. And the only way that they will ever accept the truth is that God has to open the mind, open the heart, grant them the ability to believe. And that's throughout the scripture. That's not one passage pulled out of context. That's throughout the scripture. And Christ is saying here, because you're not able to listen to my word. You're not able to do it. Why? Because you are blinded by your sin. You're not able to listen. Instead, what he tells him, he says, you know, you guys, you are, are of your father, the devil. You want to really know who your father is? Your father is not Abraham. It's certainly not God the father. It's the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. What's the desires of Satan? What has Satan always wanted to do? Still kill, Still kill destroy. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You want to know what Satan is like? Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. And there's no truth in him. Folks, Satan will never tell you the truth. Period. 
And what truth he may tell you is only there so that he can slip in the lie. It is not within his nature to tell you the truth. We've, you know, you ever know anybody that they can't tell the truth if their life's dependent on it? Oh yeah. They just can't tell the truth. There's always an angle they're working. There's always something going on. They're called politicians. No, I'm sorry. Um, the, the point is, Satan. He was a murderer from the very beginning, and you are the same way. Because why? Because you want to kill me. You can't stand the truth, so how do you do? How do you deal with not standing the truth? You kill me to shut me up. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Why don't you believe me? You don't want to believe me, and God has not given you the faith to believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Any Can any of you convict me of a single sin? What was the rhetorical answer? No. No, and when it was all said, and then they tried to find a sin, and they could find no fault in him. Probably one of the most astute things that Pilate ever said was, I find no fault with this man. Mm-hmm. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. I don't find any fault with him. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. Listen, folks, why do you hear God's, why do you hear Christ's words? Because you're of God. Because my sheep know my voice. And Christ is saying, if you were God's, you would hear his words. You would know what I'm saying is true because you'd know the Father, but you don't know the Father. The father that you think you adhere to, the father that you identify with Abraham, even he heard what I said. So if he can't be your father, there's only one person left that can be your father, and that's Satan. That's the devil, because he has no truth in him. Satan is very orthodox. You know Satan understands biblical truth very well? Yes, I believe that too. He knows it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to, but he does know it. And what you see here is you see a hardening of the Pharisees. They're hardening themselves. All right? And someone said, you know, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. They're hardening themselves because, and here's something very important, you know, when we interact with people, if you reject the truth and reject the truth, every time a person rejects the truth, they get a little bit harder. Yeah. And there's going to come a day when they are so hard, they're done for. These people would not. Christ saying, you know, you you you're not you 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 do not understand me because you're not of the Father. You don't want to know the truth, but instead you want to kill me to shut me out. Just like Satan wanted to kill the truth, to shut it out. He doesn't want to hear it. You refuse to believe. And and this brings us to another concept here, folks: unbelief. Unbelief is a decision. It's not doubt. Unbelief and doubt are two different things. Unbelief says, I don't care 
what I see, I'm not going to believe it. It's like the average Israelite. You know, you, you do a discussion, you know, remember when uh, Israel came up to the promised land, he sent the 12 spies in, came back, 10 says, we're done for, we're dead. Two, of course, said, let's go. And, and it, you know, if, if you know, if we had Larry King back then, he would probably interview some some Jews and, you know, ask them, say, well, you know, what's going on here? And if somebody's smart enough, they say, okay, now let, let me think here a minute, okay? You were slaves in Egypt. There were ten plagues down there that destroyed the country, ending with the death of the firstborn. You left Egypt with a fortune. You plundered them. You came to the Red Sea with your back to the sea. God caused the sea to actually part. You went through on dry land, and then you watched as God destroy the entire Egyptian army in the sea. You went to Mount Sinai where you saw the thunder of God on top of the mountain. You heard God's voice. You saw the lightning. You saw the mountain shake. You went through the desert with God providing manna and water for you. Pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. You watched the pillar of smoke and fire lead you through the wilderness. And you come to the land that God promised you, and the first thing you think of is he brought you here to kill you. That's unbelief. They had all the evidence in the world, and they refused to believe. Folks, there's no, for, there's no forgiveness for that sin. If you refuse to believe, you're done for. And that's what Christ is bringing the Pharisees to here. You guys have watched me. You've watched me heal the sick. You've watched me raise the dead. You've watched me do one verifiable miracle after another. And the end conclusion is, I have a demon. That makes a lot of sense. You won't believe. It doesn't matter what I do, you will not believe. And in another parable, he says, you're like little kids in the marketplace. We pipe, and you don't sing, and we try to play funeral, and you don't want to do that. You're like little fickle kids who want to play a game. Let's play um, funeral. No, I don't want to do that. Uh, let's play marriage. No, I don't want to do that. You don't want, no matter what happens, John the Baptist comes, and you think the guy's nuts because he's an ascetic. I come eating and drinking. You call me a drunkard and a, and a and, and glutton. No matter what. It doesn't matter what you do. You guys aren't satisfied. That's what unbelief is, folks. And Christ is nailing the Pharisees here because of their unbelief, their refusal to look at the evidence and draw the right conclusion. They will not believe. And because they will not believe, there came a time when they could not believe. They died in their sins. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org. 